This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So I thought it would be fun this week to go through some of our favorite pieces of product advice that we've received lately. Okay. Kind of like a best of, if you will. Yeah, exactly. We've been doing this for over six years. We've had almost 400 episodes. And so we've had many perspectives on the show. And I wanted to highlight some of the pieces of advice that, you know, I keep coming back to in my personal work. All right. I feel like Jerry Seinfeld writing that last episode. Huh? What? You know, the the one where they witness a mugging, but they don't actually do anything about it, so they get arrested. Then in the courtroom, they have witnesses take the stand to talk about the ways that they had wronged them over the years. Yeah, yeah, just like that. <laughs> All right, never mind. We, we should just get right into it, I guess. <laughs> Welcome to Rocketship.fm. 
Rocket Ship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. All right, so one of the most important lessons that I've taken with me over the years comes from Allison Go. Ah, okay. I remember the interview with Allison. You recorded that right after her talk at Industry, I think it was like two years ago. Yeah, we were talking about her time at Amazon, a company that does everything at scale, and a major blind spot that she had when releasing a big update to Audible. So we wanted to um, be modern, right? We wanted to update the app so it matched that um, look and feel. Part of the thinking was like, you know, if you have an old, crusty-looking app, um, people won't want to use it, like, right. won't trust it even. And actually, like, you know, what's really interesting is if you want to recruit people to work on your product, like engineers, like, they don't, they're going to look at this thing. It has, like, all the drop shadows or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and they're like, what is this thing? Like, I don't want to work on this. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that. And so we, we went through this exercise of modernizing the app, right? Or modernizing look and feel. We didn't really change that much of it, like the functionality. Seems Um, innocent enough. Completely. I've I've been guilty of more than a few indulgent UI redesigns, right? But this was a major update for Apple and Audible being an incredibly popular app. Amazon didn't want it to be seen as falling behind. So how bad of a mistake could it have been then? The app was like white and had like, like a gray kind of gradient to it, which was like super like pre- iOS 7 or whatever um, version okay. um, this this change happened on. Um, but it was like white and gray. So what we, what we did was like, okay, we're going to do like a white background and no more gradients. And it's going to be like white and like very clean looking, very okay. modern. Um, we launched it and we made it. It's like, we were like, it's so beautiful. People are going to love it. And turns out when you have like a white app, that's like really, really, really awful at night. Okay. All right. Right. So you have to think about some of the popular use cases of of Audible. And turns out people use Audible at night a lot, you know, and not only that, they you know use it before they go to bed. Um, but the thing that I, that really killed me was um, one, one part of our like customer base or audience are like people who like long haul truckers. Um, which makes sense. A lot of long-haul truckers in Texas. Um, And they end up driving through the night and they have their Audible app and then it's like a beacon like screaming at them from their mount and it's like literally dangerous. It's dangerous for them because it's so bright. And they can, they dim it to the very lowest level um, but it still doesn't help. It's too bright. And so these are just use cases that, you know, me as a city dweller who uses it on the subway. I would not have seen that coming either. Right. And if they were all living in New York City, I doubt anyone on the team drove much, let alone overnight, all night on pitch dark streets. Um, so this is like my universe of how I use use um, Audible and use audiobooks. And so like none of us picked up on this use case. Right. Um, and so no one spoke up and was like, hey, there's these people who might use it in this way. And so we put out this product, not or this change, not thinking about all these people. So I think yeah. the hu- this comes back, to, like, seems like I'm a huge um, proponent of user research, but I really am, right? Because yeah. um, if we had a much stronger sense of who the user was and really understood their use cases fully, I feel like we could have caught this much earlier. So how did they end up fixing it? And um, what we ended up doing, like, once we um, had, we, we made a night mode um, to, as, a, like, a fix. Yeah. And so we... <laughs> To test night mode, we actually like blocked out 
like rooms and made them like pitch black to like test if they were too bright. It's really funny. Um, but it was like, you know, like that, that was so avoidable if we really truly understood the various use cases the of the model. And that was, that was on me, you know, not, not really digging into that and just okay. having a fairly myopic view of who our, who our user is. Right, um, right. And like, yeah, I know about our truckers. I know that that's a, a core audience for us. But then, like, it didn't, I didn't like, I didn't really understand it at the depth. Where I'm like, but long haul, and and they drive it. No, I don't have a car. Yeah. This is the case for like diversity. It's the case yeah. for having a team that like can speak up and say, hey, like, um, I use this at night. It was really bright. Like, maybe you should consider that. Um, and so, like, building that culture and like really pushing people to speak up is also important. So, like, understanding your user. And many of those people are going to be working with you, which is yeah. awesome. Um, so he, being able to hear those voices, but as well as the voices out there that maybe you don't have a lot of visibility in on your day-to-day. Got to diversify your team to cover those blind spots. That's right. <laughs> Even the best of us can be guilty of overlooking kind of critical user needs um, because their use cases, they're just different than ours. Yeah, it, it kind of like that time where Kramer's ex-girlfriend was getting mad about Jerry <laughs> Mike, let's stay on track here. I, fine. But it is the puffy shirt episode. I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. <laughs> let's talk about recruitment. How about that? Okay. Let's talk about recruitment. Um, I Sebastian Spear kind of comes to mind. I mean, he's now the, a design lead at Instagram. But before, he was the global design director on Nike sneakers. I think Nike gets about 70,000 applicants a year or something. So it's like really hard to kind of like sort through all those applicants even on the design side so they really they really use the kind of networks of the design teams at nike so like i would say the best place and kind of like the strategy that we use here on my team is kind of like word of mouth try to get in touch with somebody on one of the teams and see what the openings are through them um we kind of find almost all of our our best talent through like a word of mouth strategy. And as soon as someone, as soon as someone on my team finds someone, they'll either refer them to me or then we kind of. So Sebastian, for instance, gets these designs in his hiring pipeline. What's he looking for? At least on a team like ours, in my opinion, most product teams are, you know, like exceptionally collaborative. So teamwork and a lack of ego is like very, very important. That's almost one of the first things we try to identify. Um, as a and, and yeah, as a product designer, you're going to be wearing like several different hats. You're going to be stepping outside your comfort zone a lot. I love that. Look for a lack of ego because that can really become a problem down the line and recruit from within your network. Even with thousands and thousands of applicants, their best hires tend to come from within the network of people working at Nike. And hopefully it's a diverse network. Otherwise, it's worth working on diversifying your pipeline of candidates so you don't run into the same issues that Allison Go did at Audible. But we should stop here for a minute for a word from our sponsors. Let's jump over to some product philosophy. G2 Patel, who's the chief product officer and chief strategy officer at Box, talk with us about the approach that they take when deciding when to build a feature. Yeah, we, we actually have this philosophy that we use, which is this notion of, um, you know, uh, 10xing the capability for uh, the market. And the, the thinking over there is, 
if you build something that is not at least 10 times better than what the existing solution is, chances of you being able to motivate um, a customer or a user to move over to you is pretty small. You know, so 20% improvement on some, some way of doing it, the existing, the inertia is so strong that you just won't be able to motivate people from moving over to you. So how do you then think about innovation at a 10x? Uh, the, the nice part about this 10x rule is it makes it very easy for what problems to focus on and which problems not to focus on. Because let's say you found a really big problem, but the solve that you have is only 20% better than what, uh, what might currently be available in the market. Don't bother with trying to solve the problem. You know, um, it's, um, it isn't as, uh, it's not gonna have the level of traction and potency as it would if you um, if you were going out and doing something that was 10x. So a product or feature should be 10 times better than what's currently available. That's an awesome way to think about where to put your team's efforts in. Yeah, yeah. So let's hear from one of our favorite guests and someone who just keynoted Industry 2019. Are you talking about Common? Oh, well, <laughs> I wish. Um, no. We haven't had him on. You, I know, I know. <laughs> I think you're talking about Bob Mesta. I am. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about one of his favorite things. It's got to be jobs to be done, right? Well, close, right? How about anxieties? Ah, okay. Yes. This is his replacement for personas. Instead of focusing on a made-up persona of a customer, you focus on what anxieties would push or pull someone to a product. The notion here is this, is that if I can understand what caused you to buy my condo, so I would actually, I only interview people who have already made the progress. So somebody who, I don't want to buy, interview somebody who wants to buy a house. I actually interview people who have already bought the house because in that process of doing so, they actually have all these forces that push them and pull them, but they also had anxieties along the way. They also had habits that they had to overcome. And what happens is, is when they're in the midst of it, they actually don't, none of those are as explicit or they're, they're, if you will, in the subconscious. But afterwards, you can actually pull them back and say like, yeah, this and this happened. And I'm like, well, why would you do that? And you just dig and you dig and you start to realize like, well, I was really worried about something. So how do we find out what those anxieties are? I'm actually just trying to get the truth. But what you realize is we start to actually, when, when we, for, so we never talk to people who want to do something. We talk to people who have actually tried and either failed or made it, but they're, they're past, the, past the decision point. They've made some kind of commitment to do something because if I interview people who just want to buy a house and they're like, I'm, I'm in the market and I'm looking, what happens is you get, I want five bedrooms, I want three and a half baths, I want granite countertops, I want, they want, I want, I want, because there's no money involved. But the reality is when they purchase, there is no purchase that is ideal. Every purchase has a trade-off in it. And ultimately, I'm trying to use trade-offs to understand the hierarchy of what's important to them. So Bob had a great story to illustrate this about a friend who bought an $80,000 car. It's an $80,000 car, absolutely gorgeous. Drives up, I'm like, wow, this thing is beautiful. He goes, yeah, it's great, it's, it's, it's gray. I'm like, wait, and this is his face. I'm like, what? He goes like, well, you know, I wanted white. I'm like, but but you just bought an $80,000 car and it's not the color you want? He goes, yeah, I had to wait two more weeks. Two weeks, that's it? He'd probably have the car for five to 10 years. Yep, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. 
Well, it could have been that important then. Like at some point, it's like if you could have waited two weeks, you could rent a car for that. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, and it's one of those things where it's like you start to realize like we make trade-offs and as much as it says, God, I really want white and I would say white all the time. The, the reality is that he wanted the car and he wanted to have, you know, there's a whole bunch of other things that were at play. And despite the fact of what he said he wanted, he was able, willing to trade off. And so part of it is the value code of how people are, how these things are helping them make progress, that value code is embedded in all the trade-offs they make. Always fascinating. This is one of the concepts that first helped draw me to the jobs to be done framework. All right, nice. Uh, well, let's move on from that and anxieties to storytelling. Uh, when you actually talked in the past to Michael Jarman, who at one point wrote for Beavis and Butthead, and if I remember in that conversation, you said you couldn't remember the story of Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> Honestly, I, Seriously? I couldn't <laughs> just roll the clip. Hero, obstacle, goal. Interesting. It's the struggle of a hero fighting an obstacle to achieve a goal. And that's it. Okay. And it's not two goals. It's not three obstacles. It's one, one, and one. And that's it. So I'm going to give you an example uh, just for everyone, you know, uh, an example that everyone's familiar with. Mm -hmm. So Jack and the Beanstalk. Yep. So who's the hero? Jack. Good. Got it right. Dude, the hero's usually <laughs> got his name in the title. So what is his uh, goal? Um, shoot, it's, it's... All right, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All right, so let's talk a bit about working together as a team. Yeah, one of the hardest parts of being a product manager is finding the balance between pushing the team forward and micromanaging. Right? No one really reports to you, but you still got to lead the team. Mm-hmm. And when we talked with Natalie Nagel, the CEO of Wildbit, she laid out some boundaries and expectations that she sets for her team. Sure. So we have a rule at one of our kind of main values and our rules in our company is we only work 40 hours a week. So that means that, you know, Chris and I only work 40 hours and all those 40 hours have to be really focused on the work at hand. And that's the only way that kind of works. And so what we try, what we've been trying to do is making sure that everybody is given those 40 hours as their own personal productivity time and to look at how we work together as a way of borrowing each other's time. So instead of taking for granted working together and asking somebody a question and collaborating we really try to focus and say like anytime I bother somebody I'm taking time away from them so how do I really minimize that or be really thoughtful about the way in which we work together and collaborate as a team I like how they set the framework for the whole team to work within when you think about using someone's time in that way it does give you pause yeah yeah. Well, so let's continue on the topic of management. Let's talk about emotional labor. Ah, this must be Seth Godin. That's right. He's like our John Lovitz. Huh? You know, the he guest starred on Seinfeld at one time, the cancer episode. Yeah, I, I'm not following. Because <laughs> he's famous. Ah, just play the clip. Okay. Never okay. mind. I think the lesson has to do with emotional labor. Emotional labor is what most of us do for a living now. We don't dig a ditch. We don't carry weights around. We work with feelings. And if we're getting paid, it's probably because we're doing something we don't feel like doing on any given day. That it takes emotional labor for an oncologist to look someone in the eye and talk to them about their impending doom. It takes emotional labor 
for a flight attendant to smile when she doesn't feel like smiling. Mm-hmm. It takes emotional labor to engage with a customer and help her understand that she could achieve more if she just dug in. Yeah. And so part of my quest has been to understand where do we get the reserves to do this emotional labor? So this next one was, it was a special one for me. Okay. How so? So this was our eighth episode and we were talking with Adi Paner and it felt like we had really captured something special at this moment. Okay. Go on a bit more on this one. Yeah. So we were talking about the topic of burnout, which, you know, we're all at risk hitting, but it's also something that we don't talk about a lot. And it felt like Adi was just coming out of it or maybe even still in it. Um, And so he just, he gave us this really honest depiction of what it was like for him to experience burnout. I mean, so for four years, I mean, with Team's so about a seven-year journey for me. And um, my wife and I, had been, you know, we're, we've been together uh, for about four and a half years now. And um, just taking the last four and a half years, I mean, it, it, it sounds absolutely ridiculous saying this out loud, and I'm not part of this, but... You know, within that four and a half years, I probably spent more time with Wootheems than I did with my wife. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I knew at, like, at one stage that would need to change. So, you know, when I pressed pause on public beta um, for the first couple of weeks, I literally did nothing. I would sit in front of my computer, I would click around, I would open tabs, I would close tabs, and I literally did nothing. Um, I didn't necessarily sleep late. Or any, I, I just did nothing. I didn't necessarily meet friends. I just did nothing. And then slowly after that, I, I, I started, you know, going to a different extreme, which was I, I'd go out often. Um, I'd spend, I did loads of things with my son, uh, loads of things with my wife. Um, and it wasn't until about two months into at rest where, you know, I, I actually felt, um, you know, that I can move to, you know, something that resembles balance again. So this next one, when you first included it, I was skeptical that it even related to product management. Yeah, no, I could see that. But as a PM, and to be a really great PM, you have to understand the goals of the business, right? And so when Jason Cohen of WP Engine broke down kind of the goal of raising money, it was another light bulb moment for me. And how does it change decisions for a product manager? Right, so depending on the goals of the company, it changes what your North Star is or your KPI or how you set your OKR. If you're bootstrapped, it's margins, right? Margins and profit. If you're raising capital. Yeah, the goal is not to raise an A round so that you can become profitable. The goal is to raise an A round so that you can hit milestones so that you can raise your B round. Like once you start into the institutional money, goal isn't profit. The goal is growth. Mm-hmm. The goal is to own the market. The goal is to um, become as much of a monopoly as you can. Um, within the law. That's the goal. And maximum shareholder value. And what would you say it's, towards it's a fiduciary duty to do that? So profitability is the last thing you want because profitability indicates that you're out of ideas for how to grow or invest or de-risk the business. Because if you had ideas of how to do those things, that's what you should be doing with that money. So it means you're out of ideas um, for how to spend that money against the company. Um, and until, of course, you're very, very large and reaping that. Although even today, you can see that in, say, um, you know, Amazon or Salesforce that is still, um, you know, running at razor thin cash flows because they keep reinvesting into the business to grow it, and successfully so. So, no, that's not the goal, and, and there's no institutional investor who wants that to be the goal. 
Now, on the other hand, like you don't want a completely broken business model. So, of course, there's going to be, and this depends on the business, what kinds of metrics you're looking at. But there's going to be metrics and ratios and things that are the goal. Um, and some of them might be financial. And I do like a business, and we did this at WP Engine. I do like a business that um, that tries to get cl- tries to close the gap on on uh, profitability. That is, the goal isn't to become profitable, but you should be seeing some kinds of um, approaching profitability or at least profitable when you ignore certain kinds of expenses that you're that you're intentionally overburning on um, and seeing that the, that the rest of the expenses is getting more and more profitable like those kinds of things make a ton of sense because um, that's showing the business is coming together and the business model is working as expected um, but um, no you don't raise you don't raise an a round um, with the goal of uh, with the outcome of that being profitability, not with an institute. You do that with angels, maybe who are unsophisticated, but not with uh, not with uh, with real investors. Well, this was fun. I mean, it's kind of I mean crazy that we've done nearly four hundred episodes. So I do think it's good every now and then to kind of go back into the archive and pull out the best of the best. Yeah, no, these are you know some of the the things that I keep coming back to in my day to day work, and I really felt like hey, maybe there's value in pulling them out one more time for people just for that little reminder. Yeah, and I don't think we have to wait to another 400 episodes to do it again. I think this would be good if we kept doing this every so often. Maybe we'll do it next week. (laughs) No, just kidding. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you can check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com. 